Hello, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday night, November 11th, 2014, and I am coming to you, as always, from my home here in Boulder, Colorado, where we have entered sudden winter. Uh, yesterday, the temperature fell, I think, 50 degrees, 30 of it in about an hour and a half. And you could just see it. I was out east a little bit, and you could just see this wall of gray clouds advancing from the west into what had just been a sparkling, beautiful fall. And I think this is the 10-day forecast is that it's going to continue. I've uh, been snowing all day, very cozy, beautiful day. I think we're on our seventh inch of snow. So, yeah, coming to you feeling very cozy. And I'm here, as always, with Brett Walker, who's managing the call in the kitchen. Hey, Brett, how you doing? Hey, Jeff. Brett and I went around the garden yesterday and said goodbye to all the annual plants and told them they were going to have to die later. It was sad, wasn't it, Brett? It was. was. <laughs> Morbid, the, even. The summer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's us. And a couple other just sort of introductory things. I want to give a shout out, as always, to IntegralLife.com, which is the main web portal for cutting-edge integral thinking. They feature Ken Wilber's latest work, and they host The Daily Evolver, uh, for which I'm very grateful. And this podcast is also available on my blog, DailyEvolver.com, along with some of the other stuff I post, and also on iTunes and Stitcher. And, you know, our audience is really growing, and I'm really happy about that. And, and thank you for tuning into the live or downloading it and sending it to friends and talking about it. It's been really a very rewarding project for me. So I'd like to start tonight by just, well, I guess, introducing the main theme. We're going to talk about white privilege, uh, free speech, um, politically correct speech, you know, this whole green postmodern project of healing racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, classism in our society to really to bring all of the people that have been victims of the previous stages of development, the sinners, the victims, the oppressed, the forgotten, into the field of, you know, mainstream human endeavor. And it's a beautiful project and a huge achievement of humanity and uh, it has its problems. So we'll take a look at that tonight. Uh, I want to start, I, I guess it's in the same uh, you know, topic area, but it's uh, just a little report on my weekend. I spent the weekend in Palm Springs, California. I went out with my boyfriend Chuck and a couple friends, and uh, you know, just basically to hang out for the weekend. And it turned out, we didn't know it is when we uh, booked our trip, but it was Gay Pride Weekend in Palm Springs. And Palm Springs is a really interesting little town. It's 45,000 people, a couple hours west of Los Angeles in the desert. I couldn't independently verify this, but it's said that 40% of the population is gay men. And I got to say, that feels about right. Uh, it's really probably, the it's got to be, the highest percentage of gay people in any community, probably on the planet. So, of course, they do gay pride up big. 
and they have huge shows and stages. They close off 10 or 12 blocks of the downtown area. There's pavilions, there's street performers, there's all these displays and food. And an additional 20,000 people come in from out of town to be part of the fun. You know, so we went and partook. And what I noticed was, uh, first of all, it was very civilized. And as a veteran of gay pride parades from the old days back in the 70s and 80s, which is when this all started after Stonewall in 1968, uh, I just couldn't help noticing how many families and kids and, you know, there wasn't a bare ass or bare boobs to be found anywhere. And of course, these were trademarks of the gay pride parades of old. I always remember the, a great headline uh, in The Onion, which is a humor magazine. They have a story about the gay pride parade and show this picture of these men on a float in this parade. And they're, you know, in chaps, uh, you know, which is, the, of course, those leather leggings worn by cowboys. But of course, they're not wearing any pants underneath the chaps. And, you know, it, the, the parade starts with the dykes on bikes, which is the lesbians in their Harley Davidsons, and it's deafeningly loud. And the headline of the article on, in The Onion is, Gay Pride Parade Sets Back Gay Rights 50 Years. And, you know, I always, I'd go to these parades and I'd always be a little nervous, you know, Jesus, Lord, I mean, look at these people out here, their feather boas and gyrating and naked and uh, just putting it out there. And, you know, I'd sort of cringe because I'm, I'm kind of, you know, overly civilized myself. But what I realized is that that's part of the process of social change. And sometimes you have to just put it in people's faces. And, you know, because people will happily live in a state of denial if they don't have to see that there are, you know, oppressed minorities or subcultures that they prefer not to look at, they won't. And so, you know, that stage of the movement is really, really important. And, you know, I kind of miss it, actually. <laughs> but a lot of people did. A lot of people commented that, you know, this was tame. It was commercialized. It was huge. It was successful. There were people everywhere. Uh, but, you know, the parade was, um, you know, Wells Fargo and the car dealers and the insurance companies and the grocery stores and, you know, the gay organizations, too, you know, and God bless them all because they're showing a solidarity that they never would have shown in the 70s. Uh, there was no sponsors anywhere near these gay pride parades back then. But there is a loss of tribal identity, and it actually gave me some insight into, you know, the purple and or the magenta and red altitudes of development, where tribal identity, the sense of having a shared history, the sense of having a shared oppression, actually, I mean, anybody who was at a gay pride parade in the 70s had lived through the experience of being afraid and ostracized and having their sexual life distorted and marginalized. And that is a powerful uh, glue. Uh, and I remember back in 1992, walking in the gay pride parade in Washington, D.C. This was after Colorado uh, legislated against non-discrimination clauses for gay people. So in other words, made it legal to discriminate against gays officially. It was a, a passed by popular vote. And, you know, we were sick. We were so discouraged and offended. And this was a huge, you know, 
many hundreds of thousands of gay men and women in the capital. There was an energy there that is very different than the energy that we saw in Palm Springs last weekend. And yet, you know, I'd have to say I'll take the latter because what it shows is a movement that has become astonishingly mainstream uh, in a historically astonishing rate of speed. And so that is a good thing. Uh, yet we notice what is lost. From an integral perspective, anything that's lost can be regained in a new, more awake, alive, intelligent, and loving space. So we're heading to a sacred world where we all get to be tribal members with each other. Uh, and I don't know exactly how that's going to happen, but I feel it in my bones. All right, so this gets to uh, really the bigger story that I want to look at tonight. And that is, you know, the evolution of the integration of minorities, oppressed uh, people, sexual, racial, gender. This is up. I've, I've gotten a number of, of questions and speak pipes. By the way, the speak pipe on my blog, dailyevolver.com. It's a big orange button, and you can press it and leave me a voice message. You know, question out. I may use it on one of the shows. I may respond to you personally. I may not, whatever. But it's a great way to, um, you know, talk back. And I'm getting a lot of them, and I appreciate it. And a number of them this last week have been about this idea of white privilege. And I think that it's uh, Bill Maher, the controversy surrounding him. He's been disinvited from giving the commencement speech at Berkeley this year. Um, you know, Hersey Alley uh, being disinvited from Yale. Actually, we have, I think, Brett, do you have it queued up? We have a question uh, from one of our listeners that I think illustrates a lot of the issues going on in this area. And, and if we can, Brett, uh, we'll play it and I'll comment from there. Hi, Jeff. My name's Chad Bennett. I live here in Boulder, and I'm an adjunct faculty member at Naropa University. I have a question for you around resources, looking at diversity and cultural sensitivity from an integral lens. I've been introducing integral theory, which I'd say I have a kind of moderate knowledge of. I certainly use it and think about it on a daily basis. And I started to introduce it to some of my students, and obviously... Naropa is a very green culture, and I got some uh, really mixed reactions, and my hope was that introducing the framework would open conversations around diversity rather than shut them down, and I think uh, some students may have felt that it opened it, and some others, for all the reasons we know in terms of green, had a real difficulty digesting it. Anyway, there's conversations going on. It's a very hot topic in the Graduate School of Psychology at Naropa right now. A lot of uh, incidents have happened around racial and gender sensitivities. It's really hot at Naropa right now. And there are a few of us, uh, you know, privileged white men, quote unquote, who uh, are really looking to take the dialogue to another level and are even thinking of forming a group where it's safe actually for men in privilege to speak openly about this, and I'm hoping to introduce an integral framework. So the long and short of it is, are there any books, resources, names you could throw me around using the integral framework for uh, cultural competence and diversity issues? 
Yeah, thanks, yeah. Brett. And thanks, Chad. Yeah, I talked to Chad a bit today as well, and I share a lot of his experience. And I'll speak from my own experience at Naropa. I went to Naropa uh, for about five years, got a master's degree there. Uh, I think I graduated about seven or eight years ago. And it is a green organization, and that's not an insult. A lot of times in the integral world, people see it as such. Uh, it's not. It's uh, a stage of development that is a huge achievement, again, in terms of actually turning one's attention to bringing online the people who have been left behind. And I, I think it's really, you know, as, as I say, just uh, it, it amazes me that that's the evolutionary stage that people went to after traditionalism and modernity in the first half of the 20th century. But it is, and it's good news. And really, the project of Green is to, uh, you know, change that, to bring everybody, to make everybody equal. And we start with equality in terms of what we would call in the, in the integral world, the exteriors. That is how we treat other people uh, in, in terms of actual behavior, uh, so we don't discriminate. And also in terms of the legal system and the social structures that there is, you know, since 1964 in the civil rights legislation here in the United States, it is illegal to discriminate against people in terms of housing, education, employment, and so forth. So, you know, for the most part, the, the legal side of the street, uh, the exterior side of the street is handled. And there's still some question about, you know, do we do affirmative action? Do, do we make legal systems that, uh, you know, in, in a sense, privilege people who have been deprivileged in the past? Uh, that is on the way out. There's a, uh, there's been some legal uh, decisions by the Supreme Court that undermine that, but that's still in play. Uh, certainly people can do that uh, individually, affirmatively. But really the project at this stage of the game is for the interiors, the hearts and minds of people. Uh, because we see that by almost any social metric, employment, education, health, violence, African-Americans particularly, but other minorities as, as well, are behind in, in every measure. And, and that's um, at the same time that, that there is a huge growth of an African-American middle class and just basic integration, intermarrying and so forth, where, you know, the, 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 these distinctions start to, you know, even fade away as the genetics are, missed, or are mixed. Uh, and this is a good thing. But it's still very much true and very much with us. And, you know, I think there's a couple observations I'd make is that uh, in one sense, a lot of what is considered racism is actually a, uh, a, a function of development. For instance, there's, there's the question that's often raised when you're talking about racism, and, and that is, who do I cross the street to avoid? Do I cross the street to avoid you know, black people? And of course, most people would not cross the street to avoid somebody who looks like Colin Powell or Barack Obama, or, you know, who's you know, dressed and carrying a briefcase and a suit and all of that good stuff, because that denotes a modern person. And we're not afraid of modern people. 
we are afraid of people who are at red. And so if there is somebody who is that I get the vibe that they're red, whether they're black or white, they're a thug, they're a skinhead, they're a drunk, whatever, I'm going to avoid them. And that's not racism. That's, you know, avoiding red, not black. So there's confusion around that. Uh, but still, you know, racism is alive and well. I, I read a statistic. Uh, I wish I could have found it, but it broke my heart, really. And it's it was that job resumes from people with names uh, associated with African-Americans get far fewer responses than resumes from people with names who are more white sounding. And geez, what a, um, you know, cross the bear, what a, a you know, a, a, a barrier to overcome. And, and this is just indicative of, you know, this kind of subtle racism that happens in the interiors where the work is still being done. And the cutting edge of this work is in academia right now. And it's a, a new project, well, probably a couple decades old, but relatively new historically, where it's not just about overcoming overt res racism. It's about pointing out privilege. Racism is the sense that, or the reality, that other people are put at a disadvantage. And white privilege is the sense that I, as a white person, am being put at an advantage. And that's a difference. You know, one is fixing what's broken. The other is noticing something that is invisible until you pay attention. And this is where my experience at Naropa really helped me. And I, you know, I hear that some of the same dynamics happening in, in Chad's question. And that is that one of the things that was made clear to me when I was at Naropa, and I was, I went there, you know, middle-aged. I was, you know, in my early 40s. I'd been successful in business. I'm white. I'm a man. Uh, I, I was gay. I am gay. Uh, so that was a little bit of a calling card for me there. But uh, for the most part, you know, it was made clear to me that I can never and will never understand uh, the plight of people, women, blacks, poor, uh, disadvantaged in ways that I am not. And therefore, my opinions had to be filtered through that filter. And so any opinion I had, whether it was about politics, a movie, culture, relationships, whatever, uh, had to be seen in light of my privilege. And if I didn't notice it myself, somebody would point it out to me. And did I feel oppressed by that? Yeah, I actually did in real time. You know, I mean, I had good ideas too. I was coming from a good place and a good heart. But now I realize the intelligence of that. And part of it was, I, I think, you know, maybe a year or so into it, I got in touch with something that I'd never gotten in touch with. And I'm not sure I ever would have if I hadn't been put through this. And that was my own rage about being oppressed as a gay guy. You know, uh, my story to myself was that I've never been discriminated against that I know of. And I, I really wasn't in terms of any job or anything like that or 
I don't remember losing any friends. Maybe I did. You know, maybe people snickered behind my back. I don't know. But my family was great. My friends were great. I, you know, had a successful career. And yet, I remember going to the movie in, uh, you know, whenever this was, 2004, 2005. And I remember it like yesterday. I, I, I was watching some romantic comedy. And I remember thinking to myself, if I have to sit here and watch Meg fucking Ryan kiss Tom fucking Hanks one more minute, I'm going to stand in my seat and start shouting. You know, where are my stories? I love too. I'm passionate too. I'm, you know, my life, my sexuality, my love is not something to be ignored. And when am I ever going to see something up in that screen that represents me? And, um, you know, it took a while. Actually, the first one was Brokeback Mountain. And still the best of the genre. There's now, a, but, you know, there's a whole subculture now. This is, again, the, the, the amazing progress that gay people have made and the culture has made regarding gay people is there's a whole subculture of gay romantic movies, comedies and dramas and so forth that just didn't exist back in the day. I'm glad I felt that. It, it didn't last, but it was integrated. And it helped me to understand some of the, you know, rage that comes with being left out because of a characteristic that you had nothing to do with. It's really just as, as we move into a more and more mature, modern, modern and postmodern sensibility, it just becomes intolerable to accept that. And so does green overcorrect to a degree? Yeah, I guess it does. I mean, there's a certain currency to, to being a victim at green. The victims are heard. Uh, the victims are made room for. But as I came to realize, this is, you know, a good thing. And that, you know, there's always politically correct speech in every stage of development in first tier, for sure. Um, you know, traditionalism, it's not okay to, to speak badly of God. You know, that's politically incorrect. Uh, it, in modernism, it's not okay to be irrational, superstitious. In postmodernity, it's not allowed to speak ill or insensitively about those who have been oppressed and left out. Equality is the goal and, and byword. And what I realized is that this is something that is really beyond understanding. It's, it's not something that makes sense in a mental way, but it makes sense in a heart way. It may make sense in a mental way too. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't. But I, let me just use it. I, I think an analogy that I, I think helps to, you know, illuminate this. And this is one of the things that, as integralists, we can do as a practice. And that is to look at these big currents in the culture as a whole, in terms of relationships and how people get along in the culture as a whole, as if they were showing up in a personal relationship between two people. And it helps us to understand. And, and so let's say that you're in a relationship 
where you victimized another person. You're a husband who has beat your wife, and now you get it that that's the wrong thing to do. And so, okay, when a man is trying to come back from that kind of history, it's not about overlaying a field of fairness onto the relationship. It's not about, I'm sorry, you forgive me, and we move on. What happens is a person in that situation has to recover lost ground. You have to make it up to her in some way. And there's only way, one way to do that, and that is she has to know that you get deeply in your heart and soul and every cell of your body that you get the effect of what you had on her or what you did to her. And until she deeply hears that, uh, it's going to be hard for her to trust you. And so you try to apologize, it doesn't work. You try to explain, it doesn't work. You try to show that you're hurting too, it doesn't work. All things in their time. And what we can do, and this is where we can generalize this into this sort of bigger situation of dealing with people who have been and are being oppressed, is that you can witness and listen. You can see and hear, witness and listen. And again, with your heart, not just your head. And if you're really able to allow their experience, her experience, if you will, into your psyche, utterly undefended, then you have a chance. And so, you know, what I realized is, again, it's not about fairness in that moment. You know, sure, my opinion matters. Uh, sure, I have it, you know, I care about this. But... I get that there's a bigger field of fairness that we're working with here, and it's not just about me and the person or class that I might be dealing with at Naropa. It's about karma, and it's about the karmas of history. You know, I mean, the conservative retort to this is that what you're talking about in terms of, you know, an abusive husband and a wife makes sense in a personal relationship. That's how he wins back her trust. But here, in terms of general culture, we're talking about hundreds of years of history. Uh, I can't be responsible for what my great-great-grandparents did to your great-great-grandparents and, and blah, blah, blah. And again, what we're talking about is a larger history of what we would call memetics, uh, or karma, just the history of cause and effect, and that people who have been oppressed, races that have been oppressed, women, uh, gay people, that those feeling states and those cultural identities are still alive in the field. And they have to be healed. And that maybe we actually do need to take on some of the guilt and shame of our ancestors. And maybe we do have to, you know, make some sort of reconciliation. This is, you know, the, the basics of nonviolent communication, uh, you know, of, of, of sort of re restorative justice, where people's wounds are deeply seen by the victimizers. And that there is a healing that takes place in that 
simple seeing and hearing. And so it's not about fairness in, you know, who gets to talk and how much airtime they have in any given situation. And that's really one of the great, I think, benefits of integral thinking or evolutionary thinking in general is that I don't have to fight every battle. I, I actually can trust that there's a deeper system at work, a system of emergence into ever greater goodness, truth, and beauty. And I can trust that. I can actually relax and surrender and let go of this idea of that you have to fight for what you believe in. I mean, good Lord, really? <laughs> I mean, I don't even trust what I believe in. Uh, you want me to fight for it? I mean, I get, of course, that you have to do that. But sometimes you just have to lay down the, lay down everything and just um, receive uh, the pain and the karma and the um, experience, the deep experience and subjectivity of another human being. I mentioned that I have been studying Terry O'Fallon's developmental model about some of these higher stages of development. And I remember something she said that um, just really struck me. And she said that at these higher stages of development, integral stages of development, people are able to have intense but non-demanding relationships. And I'm not sure that's directly uh, related to what we're talking about here, but it feels like it is uh, and it's very instructive that when you're in these situations, particularly in academia or wherever it may be, that, you know, white privilege and, and just basically that, that, that project of, of seeing privilege, where it's not about fixing racism, it's not about noticing disadvantage, it's about noticing advantage, that in that kind of a situation, there's an intensity, there's a lot of juice there, but it can be easily metabolized if we drop our resistance. Okay, so any thoughts on any of this, uh, please? Uh, in fact, I see Chad's on the phone. So um, Chad, maybe we'll just take this moment to um, welcome Chad on. And, and, and any thoughts on that, Chad? Hi, Jeff. Hey, man. One thing that you said that I wanted to ask about or explore a little is the notion of green overcorrecting. And since our talk today, I've been wondering if in general, as, as integralists, we undercorrect. Yeah. You know, I heard your point about being willing to sit and listen and, and love people in, in, in relationship as a way to heal this you know, long-standing karma. But sometimes I feel like from the integral perspective, we can go to kind of one of the last thing you said is the view that things are unfolding, things are getting better, things are becoming more just. And then it, I feel like it sometimes gets swept under the rug yeah. into shadow. Okay. Um, you know, an example I had is last night I was, having dinner with uh, my wife and a lesbian couple at a restaurant in town. And we're very close friends and it's a very easy relationship. And about three quarters of the way through the meal, 
um, one of the women said something about lesbian culture that I realized in the moment I, I had a bit of a, a contraction around. And I broke contact with her for just a second or two. And when I took that home, I really realized that there is so much, no matter how loving or willing or listening I am, as someone who isn't lesbian, I have a lot of shadow, you know, that is unexamined. And I would think that would be around race and many other things as well. Yeah. So I, I feel like, in, in a way, green overcorrect, but in the integral, it's, it's not known for its social justice and activism. Yeah. No, it's right. <laughs> you know? And um, so I, yeah, I feel like for me, I'm really uh, starting to look into what, what would a shadow work kind of forum look like for, you know, white privileged men, for example, where we're kind of caught in a situation where it's really difficult to, to talk about these things. Yeah. No, and I, I, I appreciate what you said in your call and in our conversation that you are talking to other white privileged men about this in your own container. Because there's a safety there that is really, really fruitful. And, you, you know, there's a sort of a mutual support in looking at shadow. And in terms of integral undercorrecting, I think you're right. I really do. I, I think, you know, we talk about integral as arising, the integral stage of consciousness, arising in two stages. Uh, first is the teal altitude. You can see that on the chart of the levels of, of development, if you've got that in front of you. And the other, the second is the turquoise stage of development. And one of the characteristics of teal is that it is fairly analytical and heady. And it's about seeing development and seeing evolution and actually even seeing, you know, the emergence of goodness, truth, and beauty. Uh, uh, it's also very individual. It's agentic. It's not communal in the way that green was or that turquoise is. And as we move from teal into turquoise, there is a, a, a just, this is just a natural polarity that we want to move to the collective side of the street, where we want to take our integral awareness and actually, you know, be with other people. This is one of the characteristics of this move, is that we do what you talked about just a second ago, and that is we move into a uh, a conscious, intentional engagement with our shadow. And it's really interesting. I mean, one of the things we realize when we look at evolution is that evolution is about continuing to expand one's circle of what one is able to see about oneself, about other people. It's literally, I, I talk about it as uh, that the, the, turning the dial in the Google map where you can just see more and more of the terrain and texture of your own life and of other people. And one of the things we know about evolution is that there's more to come, that there is a part of, in my case, Jeff, that I can't see. And that's really new, that realization, that there's a part of myself that I can't see, and that the project of my life 
and maybe the project of Jeff over many lifetimes, I don't know, but I don't rule it out, is to just continue to see the parts that I'm missing, the parts that are running me unconsciously. And we are sitting at a whole big strata of racism, sexism, and homophobia for the vast majority of human history. And that is there. That strata is there. And that is operational. And very, very much of it is unseen by our conscious minds. So the project is, as we move into turquoise, the stop undercorrecting. You know, look at some of these things that are just uh, running the show, but are not part of the conscious decision-making system. So, yeah, I, I think that whatever we can do, and again, one, one of the things, I, I mentioned that this project of privilege is, it's based in academia, it's based in the green meme, and it's up, it's in the culture, and it's part of how we as a culture will just continue to, um, to develop. So, yeah, I think you're right. And uh, thanks, man. Again, if you have any questions or comments, press one. And I uh, just want to finish up with another comment that I got from a regular listener who I have a lot of respect for. I think we have a different point of view here, but we will um, entertain them. And so, Brett, do you want to read the message from Charles? It was in the comments section on my blog. Sure. Oh, and by the way, Charles was talking, uh, responding to my last week's post about being a disappointed Obama apologist because of the election results. So he's uh, starting by um, referring to that word, uh, Obama apologist. Jeff, an Obama apologist? Really? Of course, like the rest of us progressives, you like what he says, but look what he does at his actual policy decisions. After accepting a Nobel Peace Prize, he's become a serial killer who is comfortable with selecting names from a weekly kill list for so-called targeted drone attacks that have killed more than 2,000 people so far, most of them civilians, including old men, women, and children, in at least six countries. He reserves the right to assassinate American citizens and others without due process. He ramped up the illegal war in Afghanistan and now renews his commitment to aggressive war in Iraq after earlier participating in the disastrous attack on Libya. He looks the other way as Israel systematically bombs and starves the citizens of Gaza, reducing them to the condition of junkyard dogs. He violates the Constitution by refusing to prosecute high crimes committed by top officials of the Bush administration. He's a corporatist who lets the Justice Department pass on indicting too-big-to-jail CEOs of the predatory Wall Street banks that nearly destroyed the financial system. He leads no fight to raise taxes on corporations, nor to strengthen labor unions nor to eliminate massive subsidies to agricultural, energy, and other industries. He does nothing about the world's largest prison population, a huge percentage of which consists of black youth stuck there for petty crimes. 
He continues to deport record numbers of undocumented workers. He has persecuted and prosecuted record number, numbers of whistleblowers. He has authorized billions to upgrade the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal. I could go on. That's a lot that needs defending. As an Obamapologist, you've got a heavy stone to roll. As an integralist, you shouldn't even be trying. As Ken Wilber has written, every stage of development has its triumphs and disasters. Obama, I'm afraid, has become an agent of disaster, and no integralist should be afraid to say so. Woo! <laughs> a oh, lot. God. All right. <laughs> I, I'm not, not going to even argue facts. You know, I, I think he's you know, right enough in this critique. In terms of actual policy, you know, I want a war, world with no war and, you know, no government oppression and, you know, where Israel's a better citizen and, you know, immigration is handled and all of that stuff. But I, I guess my biggest response or retort to that critique is I can actually say it in three words. President John McCain Actually, I could say it in eight words. President John McCain and Vice President Sarah Palin. <laughs> and, you know, this was the choice we had. And there's, well, there's a couple of things at work. First is, it's a little bit like I talked about earlier about the gay pride parade, pushing gay culture, smashing the, you know, into the face of mainstream America. And look at me. And, you know, the extreme expression. And I think that there is a very, very legitimate place for this kind of polemic. And I, you know, polemic's not a bad word. You know, you're making a political argument here, Charles, and I think there's a place for it. Uh, you know, it, it is, some people are natural crusaders. Uh, and, you know, it's part of that is, as I said, the extreme. Uh, and, you know, and it actually makes me think. Will there be a time in human history where it will be unthinkable to kill anyone for any reason? You know, where we'll have a sturdy enough global civilization where, you know, it won't be, you won't, not only will it not be okay to, for individuals to kill each other, it won't be okay for nations to, and there will be some enforcement. And I think that's true. And the, the problems that you point out will be solved. But in the meantime, America is a big old battleship. And if Obama presented the agenda that you describe, he wouldn't be president. He couldn't be president. I'm not sure he could be on the city council of Boulder, Colorado. Maybe he could. <laughs> but he'd have to soft pedal some of that. Politics is the art of the possible. We all have to sort of spin and lie and, you know, sort of dodge to live our lives. Uh, most of us do at any rate. And that's certainly true of politics. And we, we so hate that game. Uh, and, it's, it, and I think so much of it, I men I've mentioned this from time to time, is so much of it is a projection on politicians, this, you know, these corrupt politicians and how they lie and spin and deceive as a way of you know, not having to deal with our own uh, habits of doing the same thing. But at any rate, I remember when Obama was elected in 2008, he was against gay marriage. Now, 
I knew he was for gay marriage. All we liberals knew that he was for gay marriage, but he had to say he was against it. He had moral qualms because if he didn't, he couldn't have become elected. Bill Maher talks about, you know, I, I wrote it down. He said, you, you, you know who's a liar about religion? Obama. He's always spouting spiritual shit, and I don't believe it for a second. He's a drop-dead atheist, absolutely. And he only joined his church to move ahead in the political world. He went into this whole thing. I think it's, you know, probably a lot of truth to that. I think Obama pretends to be more, more religious than he is. Uh, again, these are binary choices between Barack Obama and John McCain. And I think we need to just breathe in that bigger view that from an integral perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, if we do indeed trust the system, there's a place for the polemics that you just shared. There's no doubt about it. And bless your heart, you're a terrific thinker and writer. I mean, that was really well done. And where I go with this is to appreciate and relax into life as it is, which is an, you know, I often say an ever unfolding catastrophe, but it's just less of a catastrophe than it used to be. Uh, and certainly less of a catastrophe, in my opinion, than it would be if John McCain and Sarah Palin were in power. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit like a parent thinking that children should behave. They actually shouldn't, uh, nor sh should people at first-tier stages of development. I mean, the, the political views that you present are, you know, maybe, what, 5% of the population, maybe a few more, I don't know. But we have to work with the other 95% unless we're going to create some sort of a green tyranny. So, anyway, that's my... Uh, that's my response to that. Okay, I think we have time for one question, and I see uh, we have Jennifer Johnson. So, Jennifer, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. Making soup on a cold night. Oh, yay. <laughs> so, um, would you speak to, speaking of liberal tyranny, uh, the people piling on Bill Maher um, yeah. <laughs> for his critique of, is I guess, of Islam, right? Yeah. Not of Muslims, but of Islam. Yeah. I mean, it drives me nuts. Yeah, well, like, what, do you, what do you think, I've heard it. What, what would you have to say about well, it? Well, I just, I think that we have freedom of speech, and he should be able to critique a religion. I mean, God knows it's not the first time anyone's critiqued a religion or all religions. Yeah. And uh, it just, and I, the thing that I noticed with the second person who went on and really seemed like she was there on the show on a mission to get him, yeah. is that she didn't listen at all. She wasn't. She was completely obsessed with her mission and really wasn't hearing him or the other uh, panelists. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. yeah. I, I I found it disturbing because I actually would like to know more about. Islam and, you know, understand it. And I don't expect to like all of it any more than I do any religion. I think this is an example where evolution is beautiful, but not pretty. 
I think what you just said about you'd like to know more about Islam, I would too, actually. You know, I, 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 it's the religion I know the least about. And it's a religion of, I don't know, however many billion people, 99.9% of which are peaceful. Uh, modern Islam is as civilized as modern Christianity or any other religion. Pre-modern Islam is as violent as pre-modern Christianity. There's just a higher percentage of it for all kinds of reasons right now. God bless Bill Maher. I mean, he's 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 bringing it up and stirring it up, and he invited that woman on his show, and I'm sure he knew where she would be coming from. This was the show that was two weeks ago. I'm forgetting her name, but she was— um, you know, very well spoken in her own way. And she, her point that she was making was that you're tarring a lot of people that don't have violent beliefs with the percentage of people who do. And what he's saying is that if you're religiously violent on planet Earth in 2014, nine times out of 10, you're going to be a Muslim. There's something wrong with the religion. Well, I don't know if there's something wrong with religion or not. I don't know it that well. Every religion has its own quirks. It's hard to, you know, argue with some of the Old Testament, you know. I mentioned before about, you know, bashing the children of my enemies' heads upon the rocks, O Lord. Uh, it's hard, you know, to stoning and adultery and killing homosexuals and all of that stuff. Every religion has it. This way more developmental than it is religious. And this is one of the things that I think integral theory can help us understand. And in the meantime, we have these arguments that are people talking over each other and talking past each other and not listening and not, I guess, able to make these distinctions. They, I don't know, they seem pretty easy and reasonable to me. I think in their better moments, uh, under less stress of the floodlights and the, you know, showing up on TV, they'd probably have a better discussion. I don't know. That's my take on it. And I just think it's um, the way we move forward is by having these conversations. So that's what we're doing on the Daily Evolver every week. I think that'll take us through tonight. I think we're back for the next couple weeks, and then we're going to go on a holiday hiatus after Thanksgiving. Again, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This is Jeff Salzman signing off.